0: You know, a recent survey taken back in about 2006. um, uh, And was called the uh, Howard Smith News Service, as well as Ohio University. They asked this question. They said, do you believe that after you die, your physical body will be resurrected someday? Out of America, North America, 54 percent said said no. Do not believe in a bodily resurrection. Well, this is a happy day for the Christian. This is a a great day, and I I trust you've been served well this week. I think back to uh, Sunday um, when Luke preached on entering Jerusalem. You know, I'm sure you were struck by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that he set his face to Jerusalem, that he said, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and die. And then on Thursday, uh, we were just kind of stunned in in the gratefulness that we have To Jesus, who did not let the cup pass, but he drank the very last drop of God's wrath against our sin. And then on Friday, we were shocked as the Son of Man is hanging on the tree and he's committing his spirit to the Father and he's breathing his last and he's dying. I mean, when you think back to the suffering and the death of the Messiah, we saw how the hope, And and the desire of the people following Jesus were dashed. I mean, what was happening to this kingdom that was coming? I mean, their hope was gone. But then within three days, within three days, everything changed. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus, and accordingly, our resurrection, is the bedrock of our faith. I mean, this is where our hope and our joy and our satisfaction... This is God's answer to our joylessness, our, our sadness, our despair, our misery. This is how God's going to answer us, is in the resurrection of Christ. Now, I haven't preached on a narrative in the resurrection for a while. So we're going to look at Matthew 28. We're going to look at verses 1 to 10. And um, what we're going to do is just, I'm going to draw maybe three considerations of the resurrection and then we're going to look at some implications of that so if you would read with me in Matthew 28 1 to 10 and I've prayed for your eyes to be refreshed you're familiar with this but it doesn't change that this is the happiest day for us when God has drawn forth And begun a new creation. A new order is being formed even now. So read with me. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Okay, so let me just give you three things to consider about this, and we'll just look at each one. The First, the resurrection for the Christian is a public historical event. It's not a fable, it's not a tale, it's not a hoax. That's the first thing we see here. You know, the resurrection has always been challenged from the beginning. Some have said that, that the resurrection was just a hoax. It was a scheme to elevate Jesus in the eyes of his followers, that someone stole his body. But it, but it didn't happen. Or others have said, no, the, the resurrection of Jesus really was just a resuscitation of Jesus. He didn't really die. He just kind of lost consciousness from the pain, and he came to life later, or he regained his consciousness. Others say that this resurrection didn't really happen. It was more of a narrative of life. It, it, it's, more of an, it's more of an allegory. In other words, We in life will experience many resurrections as we go through trouble and as we grow through them. All of these and many other excuses all share one thing in common. It didn't happen. They say it did not happen. Now, that does not accord with the record of the New Testament. The New Testament writers, the gospel writers, and and Paul writing in the letters, they see it as happening. An actual, historical, public event. There was an empty tomb. There were eyewitnesses. Well, what happened? Well, Matthew 28 tells us a little bit what happened. You see that Matthew records the women were on the way to the tomb. That's when an angel descended from heaven, creating an earthquake. Now, remember, earthquakes in Scripture are not just the shifting of plates on the earth. Earthquakes and in Scripture, it's like God coming and ringing the doorbell. His presence is coming either in judgment or beginning some end time event. But an earthquake is always God appearing. And God did appear in the glory of this angel. Earthquake happened. He rolls the stone away. Now, in John, in Greek, it literally, he, is, he lifted up the stone and moved it. And then it says he sat upon it. Can you imagine He's sitting on it, unchallenged, unthreatened by the Roman guard. He's sitting on it. Can you imagine? His, perhaps his feet were dangling on it. Spurgeon says that he was sitting on it, defying all of earth and hell to try and roll the stone back. He's sitting. Why did he roll the stone back? Well, you know that it wasn't to let Jesus out, as if he were somehow knocking on the other side. But it was to let the women in, to see. He says in verse 6, come, see where he lay, and then go tell. In other words, he wanted eyewitnesses. The stone was rolled away, the tomb was empty. Jesus had already been raised, but it was for the women. And then, of course, Peter and John to see. See, the authenticity and the historical record it provides strong evidence for us to believe in the resurrection. For example, here's what you notice in in these first ten verses. You have details that are unique to stories, that are unique to historical events, not legends. Legends, if you know, don't have the detail associated with them that historical events can bring. You see that it was toward the dawn of the first day of the week. You see the angels sitting on the stone you even have names listed people that were alive at the telling of the story that could deny it if it weren't true these details give us evidence that it was more than a, a fable or a tale or a legend that, de- that that takes hundreds of years to develop but not just the details of the story the evidence is also in the eyewitnesses you know that's still really the strongest form of proof in a court of law is to have people stand up and say we saw it. Now, it's interesting that Matthew chooses women. Now, while it's unfortunate, it was true to this time that the testimony of women were lightly regarded. Lightly regarded. Here's what Josephus said, Jewish historian in the beginning of the, uh, or the first century. He said this, that even, he said, um, the witnesses of multiple women are not acceptable because of the levity and the boldness of their sex. Or Celsus, a second century critic of Christianity, spoke about this idea of Mary testifying. He says this, he referred to her as a historical female deluded by sorcery. But you can even look at Jewish writings that play down the value of a woman's testimony. Well, to me, that only adds to the authenticity of the record. Because if I'm going to write up a tale that I want you to believe in that's not true, I wouldn't go to the witnesses of women who would be lightly regarded. But not just the women witnessed this seeing Jesus raised from the dead. So did the apostles. So did Paul. So did the twelve. So did 500 people witness Jesus at the same time. But even in our text, I kind of see there to be a bit of evidence in the witness of the guards. Why did they have to be paid to change the story? If it wasn't as it was, why would they need money to change the story? So we have detail of the story, we have eyewitnesses, but we do have an empty tomb. I want you to recognize that is evidence. The Romans, the Jewish leaders, all agreed It was empty. Hey, the Romans would have loved to drag a body out and show it. And, you know, they saw this growing sect under their authority. They would have loved to pull a body out and say, no, he really didn't rise from the dead. Here he is right here. Jewish leaders, you know, would have loved to pull a body out. All agree the tomb was empty. And it's kind of interesting, too, because in the history, the early history of the church, they did not venerate the tomb. You know, when any great leader dies, they tend to venerate the burial place. They either put a monument around it or they go around it or they have celebrations around it. I mean, John Calvin, when he died in the 16th century, he died and was and asked to be buried in an unmarked grave because he knew the foolishness of people might venerate his grave. Well, the reason that the disciples and no one else made much of the tomb, it wasn't there. Why make a big deal out of it? So so we have this good historical evidence. Now, I don't stand up here and think that I can provide evidence that will cause you to believe. I I don't think evidence can do that. I don't think evidence can convert you at all. I think that the evidence just provides a basis upon which we believe. It calls or it, it provides a warrant to believe. See, many people think that that the Christian has to prove, the burden of proof shifts to the Christian to prove that Christ has been raised. And we gladly produce the evidence that is there. But I would say, particularly if you're not a Christian here, that the burden of proof may also shift to you to prove that Christ didn't raise from the dead. What I mean by that is, what is the historical, plausible explanation for the formation of the church? What would have caused this message of the gospel to go from Spain to India in the generation of the apostles? What would have caused the church to form so rapidly and so radically? What would cause this seismic shift in worship to move from Saturday to Sunday? What would have caused that? Or, or to take these valiant, or to take these cowardly apostles, and make them become valiant preachers, where they lost their lives giving testimony to what they saw—the eyewitness seeing Christ rise. What would cause that? You know, Blaise Pascal, the French theologian, said this. He said, I believe those eyewitnesses that get their throats cut. In other words, if you're going to lose your life on a truth, you better well believe it. You better well believe it. And these were eyewitnesses. So the burden of proof kind of shifts. I would just ask you this. For all of us here to consider, the stakes are incredibly high to look at this and consider it deeply. If Christ has not been raised, then we might as well forget it all. Forget it all. But if Christ has indeed been raised, then I would say you need to believe it all. Believe everything he has said. We believe everything he has done. So this is the first thing we see, is that the resurrection has been a public historical event. There has been no better plausible explanation to identify why we're here gathered together than an empty tomb that he was raised. Okay, look at the second thing with me, though. The second point is that this resurrection was predicted, it was planned, it was not to be a surprise. Now, when you look at the text, you do see that it was a surprise. I mean, look at the guards. They're trembling, they're in fear. I mean, the angel appears his appearance was like lightning. His clothing was dazzling white. I mean, they were shaking. They were like, the text says, dead men. Now, What's remarkable about this to me is that these were Roman soldiers. The Roman army was considered the greatest fighting force of the ancient world. They were trained in hand-to-hand combat. I mean, in bloody battles they saw severed limbs, decapitated bodies, and yet they are trembling To the point that they can't move here's the irony these guards that were alive supposing to guard a dead man are like dead men guarding a man who's alive they were shocked but not just the men the women were shocked look mark says that they were bringing burial spices to the to the grave spices are to knock down the stench of decaying flesh So they're not going there to pay him homage. They're going because they want to pack his body with spices. It says, in fact, in Luke's gospel, that they were wondering how they would roll the stone back. So they didn't believe he had come out of the grave. Now, these women loved him and they were loyal to him, but they didn't believe their faith was muddled. It was mixed. And that's why you see the gentleness of the angel. The angel says, don't be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Isn't that amazing? He is not here. He has risen. As he said. As he said. Do you know that? The angel reminds the women that Jesus had said that. He had said that. See, Jesus had predicted. You saw just a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 16, verse 20. Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and be raised on the third day. 17.22, he says the same thing. Jesus is saying this, preparing his disciples of what's coming in Jerusalem. Listen to what he says in Matthew 20. In Matthew 20, it's very specific. He says, see, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, now remember now, Matthew 20 precedes the entrance to Jerusalem that you read last week in Matthew 21. He says, see, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be flogged and to be crucified and he will be raised up on the third day. How much more detail do you need before it all happens? He predicted it, he said it. Jesus knew that his death and his resurrection had been part of the plan of God from the beginning Folks, back in Genesis, this was not a plan that God baked together real quick when things went sideways. Back in Genesis 3.15, God promised that though the serpent might strike the heel of the sun, the sun's heel would crush the head of the serpent. It was promised long ago. It was carried through the prophets. Let me give you one in Isaiah 25. He says this I will swallow up on this holy mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from our faces and the reproach of his people. That is the guilt and the curse of God due to our sin. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It's amazing. It was predicted all if you're a Christian here then your faith. Your trust, your, you see the trustworthiness of the scriptures. That you look at the scriptures and you say, I can believe what God says. I can believe what Jesus has said. You know, what's interesting about the gospels, and I want you to note this because most of us don't see this, is that the gospel writers showed Jesus knew he would die and be raised. Now, a lot of people think that's imported back into the text later on. But do you notice that the gospel writers also show their ignorance to it? Every time they show Jesus predicting his death, they show the disciples failure to understand it. So the writers are admitting they didn't get it, though he said it. And the reason I say this to you is because the scriptures, believing in the trustworthiness of the scriptures, could have led them to a place of faith and strength rather than dismay and despair. They should have gone to Galilee. They should have waited for him there. They didn't even send someone to Galilee. Jesus had said he was going to Galilee. Did they even send one person there? No, they didn't believe it. So the takeaway for us is that this resurrection shows us Jesus' prediction, God's plan. We can trust in God's word. When we enter despair and struggle and trial, that's where we go to God's word. God's word feeds our faith so that we might be strong and confident, even though the clouds come into life, we turn to God and we find his promises to be helpful and loving and encouraging. We find strength. Listen to how Jesus chides the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He says this in Luke 24. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. In other words, Jesus is saying, you should have known. I had said this to you. I gave you my word, and you didn't rest in it. People, we want to be people of the scriptures. We want to memorize, consider, dwell upon, think about. His words give us life. And we see when his word was not believed in, they were led to despair. Okay, the third takeaway. So first... The resurrection shows it's a public historical event. It wasn't a fable or a legend. It wasn't a story imported back into the scriptures. Secondly, this resurrection was predicted. It was planned. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't a shock. It wasn't plan B. And then thirdly, this resurrection throughout the ages will be disbelieved by some, and it will be believed by some. It's always going to be met with a mixed reaction. Now, you see the guards, of course, they disbelieve it, right? They saw the angel, they saw the appearances of lightning, they felt the earthquake, right? But if you were to read in verses 11 to 15 of the same chapter, you would find that they were easily bought off with some money. They they, they easily, they they just got rid of the truth and just moved on with a new story for money. Now hold them in contrast. So this is the second earthquake, right? The first earthquake in the gospel was when Jesus was crucified. So I want to paint two scenes here. You have a crucifixion, resurrection. You have an earthquake here and an earthquake here. You have guards here around the cross. You've got guards here around the tomb. This set of guards, though, so interestingly believed. It was, a, it was the centurion that said, after the earthquake, seeing Jesus die, he says, truly, you are the Son of God. Truly. And then you have another set of guards with another earthquake and another angel, another blast of glory. And they turn around and they're easily bought. They didn't want to believe. I don't know if it was too inconvenient for them. I don't know if it was changing their plans too much. I don't know why they didn't believe. It could be a myriad of reasons. But they chose not to believe. See, the same thing in the religious leaders. The religious leaders didn't send anybody to the tomb. They didn't check it out. They just said, no, 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 here's another story. Here's a naturalistic explanation that we can give. Uh, The body was stolen. You pay them off and we're good to go. Isn't it funny how these religious leaders who didn't even go to the tomb to check it out, made up a new story. You have the same scene when Jesus was born. And the wise men went to Herod and said, hey, we've seen the star, the king of the Jews. He's been born. We've come to worship him. So he goes, Herod goes and checks out the chief priests and the leaders of Israel. And what's this about? Oh, yeah, yeah. Micah 5. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, Epaphratha. There's four Bethlehems at the time. They nailed the one. This is the one who's to be born. At. They didn't even send anybody to check it out. I don't know why. They didn't want to believe. Maybe they didn't want to lose their positions. The reality of it is, here's the reality. You can hear the evidence of the resurrection. It won't make you a Christian. You can even have knowledge of the resurrection. But it doesn't save you. It doesn't make you a Christian. There are types of knowledge, you realize. There is some knowledge. There is like the knowledge of arithmetic. Two and two equal Four. That doesn't demand anything from us. It doesn't change anything in my life. It's just knowledge. Yeah, I believe it. I understand it. I know it. But it doesn't demand. This is a different type of knowledge. let called a moral knowledge. It demands something from you. You know, it's like you're walking by a lake and you see a man drowning in the lake. You have knowledge that you can save him and you do nothing to it. That knowledge really demands you to risk your life to save him. Well, this knowledge has a demand for us. If Jesus Christ has been raised, it changes the whole order of life. All of life is different. He has inaugurated a new order of living. It's a new creation. So to say that I I believe, or to say, yeah, I believe he was raised from the dead, and your life isn't being affected by it, I would say you don't have the knowledge. In fact, I would like you to consider... Do you believe this? I mean, do you hold yourself to be a Christian? And do you believe this? And do you see the marks of the Spirit in your life through repentance and faith, confession of sin? Do you see that? I'd like to invite you to believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, truly believe. And what I, what I mean is I don't want you walking out the door saying, yeah, I think he rose from the grave. But, but a belief that is going to issue forth in a confession of sin. God, I've sinned against you. I need Jesus. I need his death on the cross to remove sin from my life that I might be forgiven. I want to invite you to believe that. The confession of sin leads to the submission of the one who now is seated above all rule, authority, and power and dominion for the church. There's a submission that should be growing in our lives. There should be a desire to worship. These are evidences that belief is true and real in your life rather than some cognitive understanding of the resurrection. That's why 54% of America, so if, if 85% of America considers themselves Christian, and 54% of that number doesn't believe in a bodily resurrection, that would be over 40% of the Christians wouldn't believe in, in a bodily resurrection. What does that say? They don't believe. Let me invite you to believe that you would confess your sins in prayer to God, And that you would recognize that apart from Christ, you have no hope. No hope. But in Christ, your sins have been removed. You've been drawn in as a son or a daughter to God. That you would worship him and love him and live your life for him. That's what it means to believe in the resurrection. But let me invite you, let me also warn you. Let me warn you to not presume upon God with the time that you have. Please don't say to yourself, I need to take up this matter next week or next year or 10 years from now. Please don't presume. Because the one thing the resurrection shows us is that judgment is real. That the son has been judged. And there'll be a future judgment of the one who has rejected Christ. And if these guards were intimidated by the mere display of one little angel, Then the day that Christ comes back in glory and power as the risen, conquering Messiah, there is no comparison. I say that not to scare you. I just say that to prepare you. That's what the scripture says. But thankfully, you see in this text that some do believe these two women, that they ran. As soon as the angel said, go and tell, they went and told. Do you realize that Jesus meets them in their obedience? Boy, that's a lesson. Jesus meets us in our obedience. That as we begin to move, he is there encouraging us. They're going to tell, they meet Jesus. What do they do? They model for us a perfect response to what it looks like to believe in the resurrection. Well, they fall at his feet. They grab his feet. They don't want him to go again. They fall at his feet and they worship him. They treasure him. Can you imagine? That's really the response of all the sightings of Jesus, when, Tom, when Thomas saw Jesus, put his hands in his side, he worshiped him. My Lord and my God, he says. If you go to the end of chapter 28, before Jesus ascends, what do, what do they do? They worship him. They worship, to worship is to treasure Christ, to consider his glory, not just his power. You do, I worship him for his power, but his grace. Look at how he said, look, look at how he directs the women. He says, go and tell my brothers, My brothers, you mean the group that took off when you're in trouble in the garden? Go and tell my brothers. You mean the guy that denied you three times that was so arrogant and proud that he'd he'd never leave you? Yeah, go tell my brothers. You mean the group that's holed up right now in fear, not doing what you said they should be doing? That's right, go tell my brothers. And what's incredible is when you read in the Gospel of John, here's what he says, go and tell my brothers, say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your Father. To my God and to your God. Do you see the connection, the graciousness of Jesus Christ? Though he was abandoned, he came, go tell my brothers. It's incredible to me. This is why, for me, resurrection is the day of all days. I mean, the joy of resurrection should trump all of our pleasures and treasures. There is nothing, when you hold it up in the light of the resurrection of Christ and the new order that he has established, there's nothing. This is a day. In fact, it's so profound, it should cause change in you. So let me just tease out two or three implications of what change ought to be existing in our lives. Born out of joy, not born out of any sort of moralism or payback. You can never, I could give you 10 million lifetimes and you couldn't pay him back for bearing your sin before an infinitely holy God. So let me just tease out some implications. If Jesus Christ has been raised, The Christian can rejoice because our Lord reigns. Our Lord reigns. Jesus Christ will reign forever. It says that he has been established at the right hand of God, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. He says, far above rule, authority, power, and dominion, above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and given him his head over all things to the church. Our Lord will reign, which means his church will survive, which means his gospel will go forth, which means missions will be effective. You see the rise of ISIS. You see the rise of militant Islam. You see the rise of secularism in the West. You see the rise of this idea of kind of an anti-Christian rhetoric. There is no fear. There is no, there is no preparation that the church makes with anarchy or fear of government or fear of ISIS or fear. We don't fear that. We don't fear that. He reigns now at the right hand of God. We're to go and tell. That's what we're called to do. You go and tell. You preach the message in boldness, in confidence. That's what we're called to do. In Matthew 28, at the very end, he says this. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Therefore, go. It's under this rubric that he reigns now, and he reigns forever. That's the first takeaway. We can rejoice that he reigns. We are not people who fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. You see it strewn through the text. But then secondly, secondly, the Christian rejoices now because our Lord has defeated death. Look, his body has come forth out of the grave. Now remember, Jesus is a pledge To raise all those who hold in faith to his name. But notice how he was raised. He was raised with a body. With a physical body. I mean, how do we know? Well, they grabbed his feet. Greek culture believed in spirits and ghosts. Just like we do. But spirits and ghosts are immaterial. You don't see feet on ghosts. You don't see feet on spirits. But Jesus' feet, they were grabbed and they were held. And they were material. He ate fish in John's gospel. Thomas touched his wounds. He was raised with a body, but he was raised spiritually as well. He could pass through walls. He could move from place to place outside the normal traffic of feet. And as he has been raised, so shall we will be raised. I mean, as you get older in your body's age, this is why even if I wasn't a Christian, I'd want to be one. I mean, I'd want to know that there's something on the other side. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Here's what Paul says. What is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness will be raised in power. Think about the weakening of your body as you age. What is sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. He says, thus it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, that is us, our bodies. Then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That is what is waiting for us. If Christ is raised, the Christian can rejoice, not just because our Lord reigns, not just because our Lord has defeated death, but also because he has earned us forgiveness. We sang about that. He's earned us forgiveness. You are accepted by God right now. You're accepted. It says in Galatians four, he was delivered over because of our sins. In Romans chapter 4.25, he was put to death for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. Justification means we're declared innocent. It's just as if we'd never sinned. Jesus has borne him. Do you understand the striving that we do as Christians? The efforts that we put forth to find approval with God? that we need to do this, we've got to keep our little list of holiness that we'll find acceptance. We don't delight, we don't treasure in Christ because we're too busy sometimes trying to re-earn his favor from the, from the events of the last week. And, and, and the resurrection reminds us, you are accepted in Christ. Delight in that, people. Treasure in his finished work. It is finished, he said. It is all done. Those of us in Christ delight in it, rest in it. It shouldn't lead to a leisureliness in this life. It should lead to a confident perseverance with joy. Let me give you one more. The Christian can rejoice because the Lord has recreated us. Now, this is what I was saying at the beginning. If the resurrection is true, if Jesus has come back in this new spiritual material body, he has inaugurated a kingdom and a creation of which we now are belonging. You know, we have the promises in the Old Testament. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The child will put his hand in the viper's pit. The blind will see. The devil hear. The lame will walk. The dead will be raised. All of those are pictures of this new order that God is creating out of the disarray of sin. He's creating an entirely new order of which now we, by faith, are part of. So you are now part of a new order. This is incredible. That's the point of the earthquake, by the way. You know, the earthquake is God shaking this old, tired earth, this kingdom of man that has fallen. And it's looking to a new heavens and a new earth. And it says in Hebrews 12, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. There will be no more earthquakes in heaven. It can't be shaken. We're part of that order. That's calling us to live in radical ways. We live differently than the world. Listen, to us, weakness is strength. To us, dying is living. To us, poverty is riches. I mean, to us, service is greatness. That's the new order we're part of. And we want to live that way. That's why we get excited on this day. Every Sunday is Resurrection Day. The early church celebrated this day every Sunday. You and I are part of a new order. A totally new order. Do we see this in our marriages? Do we see this in our parenting? Do we see this in the way we handle our money? Do we see this as how we work? I mean, you tell me from your life. If not, confess. Don't go into a pit. Go to the cross. That's where he paid for the sins. The last one, the last point I'll make that a little closer to home for for Carol and I and Carol's family is that if Christ is raised, the Christian can can rejoice because God has given his spirit, the son ascends to the father and sends the spirit. And then the spirit dwells within us, bringing us, changing us from glory to glory. In fact, in Romans eight eleven, he says this, and I believe Nick even read it at the beginning. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In other words, God, because of the resurrection, God gives the Spirit to us. And the Spirit works in us all the way up to the point of death, changing us and transforming us and convicting us. Carol's going to share um, a brief testimony about what we have walked through. I know Ray shared with many of you. Carol is my wife, and uh, she lost her father two days ago on Good Friday. And we, by God's grace and thankfulness, Luke and elders of this church, allowed us to stay down there over the weekend so that we could be there with him. And, and we saw this resurrection power take place in a great work as God prepared a man to come see him. This is rooted in the spirit that has come because of the resurrection. And so... Um, Carol, in 25 or more years of ministry than that, she's never said, I would like to share this to me. So you don't have to worry about a Joel and Victoria Osteen or whatever her name is. This isn't going to be this kind of husband-wife combination now. We're bringing that on. It's not about that. But when she says, I need to share this, then I, I take that clearly as God wanting to receive glory for how he manifested his grace to us. So honey, why don't you come up?